All right, tonight we're going to conclude the book of Hebrews. Um, let me read 3, 13, 20 to 21. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, I think that the point of the book of Hebrews is summed up here, maybe the point of Christianity. And the idea is that God, who operates through peace, not through coercion or violence, uh, is uh, the, the idea he's leading his people into peace through the shepherd Christ. Uh, and, of course, the reference here, Moses was the original shepherd leading his people out of the exile, out of uh, uh, the wilderness, through death at the Red Sea. Uh, but that, in contrast, was not an eternal covenant. It was a shadow. And now we've entered into an eternal, ongoing relationship with God. And so the point of Hebrews is this is the vocation for which we were made. Uh, the very image bearing that we are to do is restored in that we are being equipped, as he said, in every good work to do his will and to reflect his glory in the same way that Christ reflects that glory. And so this is our eternal vocation along with Christ. That's very simple. In fact, it's so simple I probably lost you already. I said, yeah, he's just saying the same thing we've been saying all along. And yet this simple reading is obscured by the typical reading given to Hebrews and Christianity. And so I think the our study stands over and against this typical reading uh, throughout. In Hebrews, the work of Jesus the Messiah is not found simply in his crucifixion. It's, as we've said it's found in his resurrection, in his ascension, at his reign and the, at the right hand of God. So we're told he, he continually offers intercession on behalf of his people because of his indestructible life. We've connected that with the fact of his resurrection and ascension. Already we've made a huge departure. The writer of Hebrews talks about the temple as a microcosmos and Christ as the one who's displaced that temple. And by microcosmos, meaning that in the temple you can see the world, which means that God is imminent in that world. But Christ is the true temple, the true sacrifice, the true high priest. And in this temple, not only the human vocation of image bearing is restored, but creation itself is being set right, is being made a fit dwelling for God a place in which humans and God can rest together. And the word rest here, you know, the Sabbath rest, that we enter into his rest is the idea. So the great shepherd of the sheep has ended our exile. The imagery here is the, the picture of, you know, what is salvation? Salvation is following the shepherd out of exile, like following Moses into the promised land. Uh, death is defeated. Death is equated with the exile. The two things, you know, are in Hebrews, he's referenced. He says, do not be like those unbelievers who were left for dead in the wilderness. It's connected with slavery. You know, he, in chapter 2, he talked about the slavery, the fear of death is conquered 
and were led out of this slavery through Christ. I just said my, what I think the writer of Hebrews believes Christianity is about. As we come to the end of the book, I think we need to go back and sum up, well, wait a minute, we're presented then with this understanding. Maybe we need to contrast it with the way that many people are reading Christianity. Let me do the other reading. All humans have sinned, causing God to be angry. And he wants to kill them. He wants to burn them in hell forever and ever. Jesus somehow gets in the way. He takes their punishment. And it helped them because he was innocent in some way. And it helped that he was God's son. And now because he took God's anger and absorbed it, we're in the clear. We're going to heaven and we're not going to go to hell. We're saved from hell. Uh, And most of this is pictured as a kind of disembodied understanding. And of course you have to believe this. You've got to believe firmly, firmly that he did this. I think that has nothing to do with the book of Hebrews. I think that has nothing to do with New Testament Christianity. Um, in this long understanding, sin is understood primarily, oh, we've broken a moral code. So God told humans to keep a moral code uh, that they broke in uh, the Garden of Eden, uh, and they've not been able to keep it perfectly. The punishment is death and hell, and this is repeated. Maybe in the case of Israel, it's sharpened up a little bit, But the result was the same. Humans couldn't keep the moral code. Therefore, they're going to hell rather than heaven. And Jesus obeyed the moral code perfectly. And in his death, he paid the penalty and on behalf of the rest of the human race. And so the argument in this kind of works contract understanding is between God and humans uh, that in some way that the law is in place and you have to fulfill the law and Jesus has done what was required and so those who avail themselves of his achievement by believing in him uh, they will benefit accordingly they'll go to heaven when they die and they'll enjoy fellowship with God in a disembodied eternal bliss and those who don't they will go to hell and they will be tortured forever and ever And so it's a works contract kind of understanding. Um, Sin, I'm I'm doing the wrong understanding here. Don't don't fall asleep on me and wake up and say, oh, this is strange. Uh, Sin in this understanding does not really have anything to do with evil. Certainly not with political or social evil. Rather, sin is mostly a private moral failing. Drinking, dancing, smoking, running with those that do. And the world's evil is mostly left to run its course as part of God's plan and not really pertinent to souls going to heaven when they die. Usually the way we do the cross of Christ is that it does not address the problem of evil. And so if we would read, let me reread Hebrews 13.20 in light of this, what I'm saying is a false understanding. It would go something like this. Now the God who would like to be peaceful and nonviolent cannot be because he's really angry. 
and plans to torture practically everyone forever. This God hated the world's sin so much that he killed the shepherd of the sheep and spilt his blood so that he would not utterly destroy the sheep. He didn't bring him back to life, but this is a footnote to the main event, his death, which satisfied the law and so appeased his anger. If you do good deeds, this is really secondary to the main action, which is assuaging the anger of God. The dead Jesus is pleasing in the sight of God because this enabled him to solve his anger problem. And just as Jesus, I'm going on here, false teaching, uh, just as Jesus told the two on the road to Emmaus, forget all that stuff about temples and Israel and being redeemed. The real redemption has nothing to do with the Old Testament. It's all about going to heaven when you die. Now remove the old book from the new, as I have shown you. Amen. Uh, Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, uh, but in large part, I think this is what you get. The opposite to this, I think, well, as we've studied Hebrews, we found that Jesus is true Israel. In other words, we're not getting rid of, we, we understand who Jesus is on the basis of who Israel is, because Jesus is true Israel. We understand who Jesus is on the basis of an understanding of the temple. If we don't understand the temple in two ways, we've studied this, the temple is a microcosmos, and the temple is the mirror of heaven. Two kind of ideas that stand in tension. One focused on eminence, the other on transcendence. And Christ then brings those two together. He's talked about Jesus, who Jesus is on through an understanding of who Moses is and his redemption from slavery. And, of course, that the idea there is the true slavery is just as enslaving. It's not just an interior thing, but it's the slavery to sin and death. Jesus is a high priest, but in all of this, he's a model. What we lose in the understanding that is prevalent is that Jesus is Jesus's model. Very often it is it is that Jesus died so that I don't have to. But what we've read in Hebrews is no Jesus died and we're to take up our cross and follow him. He's our model. That's this last verse. He's the shepherd of the sheep. The sheep are to follow him. He's equipped you in every good thing to do his will. We are to enact the ethic of Jesus. And in this, there is a focus on resurrection, uh, not to in any way de-emphasize the death of Christ, but it's not simply, in other words, in uh, the prevalent understanding, the death of Christ is synonymous with atonement. But what we've seen in Hebrews, well, actually atonement has to do with the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And it's only when Jesus presents himself at the right hand of the Father, that atonement is achieved. Um, So his death and the exile of his death conquered in his resurrection, you know, the manner of his death, the fact that he's raised and ascended. And so in this, the goal is not heaven so much, but it's, and, and by heaven we're thinking of a kind of disembodied heaven, but it's a renewed human vocation within God and a renewed creation. Everything is going to be made new, as in Revelation, heaven comes to earth. And so the idea here of a microcosmos 
that what the temple presented was a, the goal of creation is to be a meeting place between God and humans. And that is now achieved in Christ, who is the true temple. And so the temple, the tabernacle, in the Old Testament in Exodus was the climax of creation. You know, even, and literally in the Genesis story, the seventh day, when God comes to rest in the temple, and in Exodus, when they build the temple, the focus in both passages is upon the Sabbath, the day in which the Lord is installed in creation. He walks in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, or he's installed in the temple. And so the end point is that Yahweh, humankind, rest together in the garden and temple, and we can begin to see then how this is the purpose of creation. It's, but that purpose was lost, and now it's restored in the body of Christ. You know, this temple, this body you have prepared for me. So the writer has talked about Christ's body in several metaphors. That uh, it's the the veil through which we enter the holy of holies. Um, it is the, the, you know, Christ is the true temple. Christ is the true high priest. If you go back even to and look at Exodus, what I'm describing here is that the idea, the purpose of creation is being restored in the Exodus in a kind of foreshadowing of what's going to happen in Christ. So God speaks to Moses seven days. And the first six speeches, uh, he gives precise instructions about how to set up the tabernacle. They seem to parallel the days of creation. You know, you construct a lamp, lamp stand that corresponds with the separation of light and darkness. You have the laver of bronze, which is called the sea, which corresponds with the third day, you know, the separation of dry land and sea. You have the uh, craftsman, uh, Bezalel, who is who is carrying out the work of in the temple, corresponds with the sixth day, the creation of man. In Adam and Eve, you know the story of Adam and Eve. Adam helps with the creation. the 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 difference, maybe, uh, in the two is that in Exodus, clearly humans have a role in the keeping order and bringing order to creation. I think that we only understand what Christ, what redemption in Christ means when we look at the tabernacle in that sense. What is Christ doing? He's bringing order. He's reordering creation. He's defeating chaos and death. Uh, the work of creation is not complete uh, until the tabernacle you know, is erected. God's glory dwells with his people. That's where we're ending the book of Hebrews. Uh, that we share the glory of Christ. Um, and so I think what we've gone through, you know, this is what we did in the Gospel of John. We go through in the first chapter of the seven days. John is repeating the seven days of creation. I think that, the, that what is taking place in Christ is recreation. Uh, and so the temple is creation in miniature, and we're seeing in Christ as new temple the recreation. So God invites uh, and hu humans to partake, though, in establishing the order, first through Christ and then through uh, his followers. And so the idea of ordering, that's there with 
Adam. I think it's there in uh, the participation in the temple fulfilled in Christ. But the work of Christ, this is salvation then, is to set humankind into their work of ordering. We're, be, we're to be about the business of, you know, the equivalent of bringing order to the world. Uh, so who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the, the sheep, even Jesus our Lord, to equip you in every good thing to do his will? We're to be about the work of the shepherd. Uh We've talked in the past about there's a, a connection between Exodus and Genesis. You know, God said, let there be an expanse. God made the expanse. The difference, of course, is that in Exodus, it's carried out. The making of this, the laver that represents the sea, it's done by human beings. Um, so I think that in doing this, uh, this is the point of creation's purpose or our purpose we're restored to our vocation we're to be about a particular kind of work the the work of reconciliation the work of redemption uh that doesn't that there's a lot of work going on but that's our work that's what we do so hebrews begins it ends with a word from god and we've, you know, that he says that in times past he's spoken through the prophets, and in many times in various ways, there's a multiplicity of words. Um, and uh, the idea is he's ending, he's saying, now that you, you know, he's explained this word, he's really spent 13 chapters. He says, uh, you know, I hope you bear patiently with this word of exhortation. Uh, and so the point is to make a fit habitation, a fit temple. Creation is cleansed. We've talked about this. What was the temple to be cleansed of? Sin and death, right? Of death. Uh, so that we've reworked our understanding of what sacrifice was. Very often we have the notion that sacrifice is presenting dead things to God. That's precisely what sacrifice was not in the Old Testament. That's pagan sacrifice, but that's not biblical sacrifice. And since humans are the the conduit for sin and death, Christ is the representative. He's the second Adam. As high priest, he mediates. As shepherd, he leads. As temple, he is the meeting place with cosmic proportions. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, uh, the Vitruvian man. You know the Vitruvian man? I think that's a neat picture of what Christ, the the picture of Christ, that he's reordering the cosmos. Um, This heavenly access, you know, he's bringing heaven and earth together. It's not that heaven is disembodied and the earthly is embodied, but the idea is that he's bringing these two things together. The psalmist says that Yahweh will built his sanctuary like the heavens, like the earth that he established forever. And so the you could go through, I did, we could go through and talk about the elements in the temple. I think that, you know, the menorah the, is, some think it's the seven planets, the 12 loaves of bread, maybe the 12 months of the year, um, the veil. There are four elements in the veil uh, in which 
many people think these are representative of the four elements of the world, uh, representing the universe itself. But now the veil, the writer of Hebrews says, is the body of Christ, that he, his flesh is the veil. The purpose of the universe, uh, with Christ ordering it, is to provide access to God. Uh, the copper basin, the sea, the altar, burnt offerings, you know, the, is the earth, that as you pass earth and sea and the elements of the universe and you enter into the Holy of Holies, and the Holy of Holies is the square room uh, that it contains the Ark of the Covenant, there's the uh, picture of the mercy seat between the cherubim and the picture usually is that the cherubim's wings fill the whole room and that uh, there's palms and I'm, what I'm the reason I'm describing this it's so earthy there's palms, there's flowers there's precious stones, there's chains of pomegranates, what does it remind you of? Garden of Eden right? That the original meeting place is recapitulated in the Holy of Holies, and the idea is that here is the navel, here is the center of creation, here is creation's purpose, and Christ as, you know, the, the true temple is fulfilling this Shabbat space, the Shalom place, the, the rest place. Uh, the place in which there's a garden in which we walk with God, in which man and God meet. So the temple, as the microcosmos, uh, is a paradise in which God and man are meant to dwell together, and I think that purpose is there in Christ, fulfilled. Uh, let me read, just a, in conclusion, just a few passages. These are from Isaiah, and I think there's a lot of Isaiah in Hebrews. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. Isaiah 40. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. What is salvation? It's delivery from imprisonment. It's uh, light shed in the darkness. Following Christ means we can experience exodus from slavery, slavery to fear of death and sin, and all that entails. Um, Isaiah 55, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you that have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Incline your ear, O come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make you an everlasting, everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Uh, it's all about entering into a covenant relationship with God. It's not a break with Abraham's covenant. It's a fulfillment of this covenant. It's not a departure from Israel. It's a fulfillment of Israel's purpose. Isaiah 49, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. 
For Yahweh has comforted his people and will have compassion on his suffering ones. But Zion said, Yahweh has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. I think what Isaiah other places is describing in Zion is a universal salvation that's being worked out, a cosmic salvation. By universal, I don't mean that everyone automatically gets saved, but the purposes of salvation are universal. Isaiah 51, he will comfort all her waste places, and her wilderness he will make like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and sound of a melody. What is being described in Isaiah, fulfilled in Christ, exile is ended. You know, this is the picture of Ezekiel. Ezekiel pictures the dry bones raising up. Well, it's the resurrection of Israel, and that resurrection is an ending of exile. In Christ, we see then the fulfillment of this. You know, this is the focus here in this last passage is on resurrection. So resurrection, N.T. Wright says, is the result of defeat, of death's deceit, defeat. Forgiveness, the result of sin's defeat. Those who learn to forgive discover that they are not only offering healing to others, they are receiving it in themselves. Resurrection is happening inside them. The wrong done to them is not permitted to twist their lives out of shape. That is, we begin to live resurrection lives. So, it's not simply that Jesus died so we can miss hell and go to heaven. Jesus has brought about the redemption of the cosmos, and we are participants in that as we follow the shepherd. We are the sheep, rescued from sin and death and offering that rescue to others. The whole world has been rescued you know, from slavery. A new reality has opened up, a restored image, <coughs> a, a divine vocation has been given to us. It is that somehow, right, says, you thereby gain forgiveness as a kind of... It isn't that you gain forgiveness as a private transra- transaction unrelated to the truth about the wider world. It is rather that forgiveness is the new reality. It is the way the new creation actually is. Let me read 1320. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Comments, questions before we free. I was working through like Exodus, just the entire book, and just reading different blogs and what people were saying about it. And one article that I found that I really liked, the author emphasized that over half of the book of Exodus 
is about dwelling, is about the tabernacle, is about the presence of God with, and that the Exodus isn't so much about Egypt and Pharaoh, but rather it's about the presence of God, and that salvation is for the sake of presence, and that God delivers so that he can be with, and how the second half of Exodus illustrates, not illustrates that, but displays that and that God desires to be with and that's why he acts and that's what put, it kind of like pulls him because he wants to be with us in the same way that a desire to be with somebody pulls us and moves us to action yeah I, th- I mean this is uh, I, uh, the thing that N.T. Wright emphasizes again and again is that Exodus uh, you know and what I brought well actually N.T. Wright does that also but uh, I've actually been reading some of it that the idea of the temple is so important in the book of Hebrews and I think we, we misread this that it, you know the point is no there's a the, the, it, it, there is a dwelling place the, the, uh, with God created for us in Christ reflected in the temple and found in the very purpose of creation that's a very different kind of I mean it's a very different focus for what we're all about it's not about souls going to heaven when you die not to, not to do away with you know the, but but that is such a in other words, I think so often is we're, we're living in a strange time in which evangelical good Christian people are in the news every day now because of not the good things they do, but because of the evil things they do. I think that we're that that maybe that's maybe it's the uh, time that a shift take place back to. <laughs> in other words, I think. A, we've emptied Christianity of an ethic. We've emptied it of living, doing life together with God and with one another. Uh, so, yeah. I think it's kind of cool too that it's um, that there is an importance and a care. I think I've said this before, but for the world and creation you know it's like a, because I think with you know every everybody has had you know different experiences with like with different with creation or animals or whatever where there's just like a deep connection you know in the wilderness or you know pets animals whatever it's like there's so much beauty you know so when that when you understand that that creation was made for that reason, it's just like really a beautiful thing, you know. And that we don't have that those things aren't opposing each other, and sometimes it seems like you know that environmentalists or Christians have to be on opposite ends or. Um, you know, just different things like that. The, the, 
that they're opposing each other when it's not, you know. Yeah, that if it's all going to be burned up anyway, why do we, let's just use it up and yeah. go to heaven. But if it's God, good, God's good earth, and we're the uh, in some way given dominion, which is actually responsibility, yeah. and that this dominion or responsibility does not end, but is an ongoing eternal vocation, yeah. suddenly our connection to everything is very different. Mm -hmm. And then there, you know, then there's even benefits for us personally, you know, therapeutic mental health involved in working in the dirt or, you know, with animals. You know, there's all kinds of therapies and healings that, you know, people are doing working with animals or working in the dirt, doing gardening, stuff like that. It's like there's a lot of, there's so much that the world, that creation gives to us because that's how God, that's what God created it for, you know, like the reconciliation, right? Mm -hmm. Between the world and us and each other and God. So we read, I think we got to about verse 11. Is that right? Dave, you want to read verse 11 for us? Why don't you read a couple verses? Read, uh, why don't you read through uh, 14, 11, 14. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places. Uh, chapter 13. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Hebrews 13. Oh, maybe I'm looking at the wrong place. Yes, 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 go ahead, I'm sorry. <laughs> On the top. <laughs> You're doing good. I, I, I just can't see. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priests, a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he demanded, he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Oh yeah, really, even though we didn't read this last week, I talked about it last week. And that is that we are to bear the disgrace he bore. We're to bear the shame he bore. And we talked about the all of Hebrews could be read in a shame-honor kind of system because that's the society it was. It was, And, and my point last week was, yeah, but every society is shame-honor. It's just that we've kind of focused on guilt in Western theology and culture, and I think it's not simply that that's different. I think that the passage from shame, uh, from guilt, you know, on to guilt and theologically is actually a mistake uh, because what it it does it privatizes individualizes shame speaks of a corporate identity and what he's describing is then a corporate identity outside the city outside the city gates I don't think you can endure shame by yourself I don't think any of us can. 
It's it, shame is an unendurable emotion. I don't think you can do this Christian thing by yourself. It's unendurable. It's too much. It's too revolutionary. Because what we're supposed to apparently do is to check out of one city and check into another. But to extract ourselves, to get outside the city, we have to find, I think, a people who have uh, set up tent, you know, the tabernacle outside the city gates. That's us, or that's supposed to be us. Sharon, you want to read uh, 15 and 16? Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do, you, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Uh, and I'm assuming that all of this, we already did this, is that as we check out of one economy and join another economy, that it's no longer what we can acquire and consume, but it's what we can share and offer to God that counts as of true value. Um, I say all this not saying... I'm saying hard things, <laughs> but at least let's get the idea there that we're to check out of this. Uh, I think that we're, the, the consumption, the desire that goes with it uh, is, is a kind of, it is consuming. Uh, and then... Uh, yeah, just a quick one. The, the phrase, the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name, what exactly does that mean to acknowledge his name? I think I've, I've seen... Yeah, the, like it's talking about praise, but just the acknowledge his name part. Um, I'm betting you've got an idea. Mm-hmm. And my idea was to ask you. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Mine and, says giving thanks to his name. Mine says confessing me. I don't know. I'm going to get up Logos. I'm assuming that, I mean, we say, we pray in the name of Jesus, but I'm assuming that in some way it is, it's not simply that. uh, That uh, in some way the confession of Christ is, uh, is going to be a fruit that is sprinkled through all of our conversation. I don't think it's repetitive statement of saying in the name of Jesus but in some way I think our conversation is uh, this is what we talk about as we go up to the city this is to be on our foreheads you know this is the phylacteries the, the Jews wear that it's to be before us day and night I think what we're to be about what we're to be talking about as Christians is God I, I mean, maybe this is just me, but I can talk about the weather. I can, I could probably talk about football for two seconds. Uh, you know, what, what do you want to talk about? You got something you want to talk about? I can't think of anything more important 
than this, but unfortunately I'm afraid we don't know how to talk about God. We don't know how to have this conversation. Well, you've said before, like, I think we get this idea that Christianity is like a nar- narrowing our mind rather than like opening up, you know, to be able to talk about everything. Yeah, and that maybe that's it. That oh, I, I, my my dear beloved aunt who has now passed away, and I'm sure she, you know that everything was uh, in name of Jesus, you know. Uh, but I think that you can become constricted in your understanding and thought. And this is what I would connect with fundamentalism. Fundamentalism is a closure. It's a narrowing. I don't think that's what Christianity is. It's that we're to take the name of Jesus into every part of our lives and into every you know, frame of reference. Uh, whether it's sociology, psychology, whatever y'all, whatever you're doing, in some way, those activities and those that understanding that you're encountering there uh, is going to be undergirded by a correct theological understanding. And so, I don't think we need to be afraid of anything of any kind of knowledge or any kind of reading. Sometimes I think I need to be afraid of certain TV shows. But <laughs> I'm not a very disciplined TV watcher. But uh, but I think for the most part we can engage the, the world's understanding and bring the name of Christ there. So that's partly what I would say this means is that uh, that we praise his name uh, in in the in other words, it that will only make sense if we give it context and resonance with the the place that we are. If I go to Japan, I say praise Jesus. Nobody will understand what I'm talking about. I'm speaking very simplistically here, but in a sense, what we continually do is translate. So, and then after that, it says, and don't forget to do good and to share. So, it's like, this is what we should be about. This is what we should be talking about. But also, you have to do it. Like, right? you got to practice action, the things that you're incorporating into every area. So, is there a Christianity that doesn't require us a practice? I mean, I hope that's become a silly question. Because I think many people, for many people, Christianity isn't something you practice. It's primarily something that you believe, and what is meant by belief is something separate from practice. Can you not, can you believe something you don't practice? Or can you practice something you don't believe? I mean, there's the two go together. So, to really carry the name of Christ bring it into reality. Alright, so we go on to 17 to... Uh, oh, we just did that. No, we didn't. 17 and 18? 17? Uh, Todd, you want to read there? Sure. 
have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. So, uh, he, he's described, he's already mentioned the leaders before, that remember those who brought you into the faith, and it's like there's a generation that's passed away. And now he's saying, you know, that you're to model yourselves after, in other words, we're, we're always being discipled, and we always, that, that it's, uh, uh, that this is a corporate thing that we're involved in. Um, and he seems to count himself here, or herself, or themselves. <laughs> uh, pray for us, whoever this is that's written this letter. We, uh, we are sure that we have a clear conscience. So, again, we're not sure who this is, but it could, as, he's, as they're ending this, uh, there seems to be a plurality of persons here. All right, and then uh, 19 to uh, 21. Uh, Terry, you got that? Uh, Chris? Sure. I ask you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to use this soon. Now may the God of peace be brought again from the dead of our Lord Jesus and the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, and I, since I just spent 20 minutes talking about this verse, but uh, I think this is the summation of Hebrews. Uh, and let's conclude, and he concludes here in very letterly fashion. Uh, Maisie, you want to read the, the conclusion? And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. So, uh, it's just a short word he's given us. <laughs> it's been estimated if you sit and read Hebrews, it'd take about an hour. That if you just read it out loud. So, I guess that uh, it's a, uh, a short word. Yeah, uh, and of course, then the the question here, the just the basic question, you know, is Timothy is the author in jail with Timothy? Is it talking about? Is it saying that Timothy is in jail, and he's about to be released? Is that what it means, or does it mean oh he's under some sort of he's doing something and he's about to be released from whatever it is he's doing? Um. We don't know. 
basically we could just ask all kinds of questions. But whoever it is, it's a companion of Timothy. Uh, and when Timothy is apparently released, maybe from jail, they're both going to come. Where are they going to come? Um, well, those from Italy send you their greetings. Does it mean that the people who are, that the writers are in Italy sending their greetings somewhere else? You've, you've been through all this, right? We don't have any answers. We really don't know. But it could be that there are a group of people from Italy in this place sending greetings back. Grace be with you all. That is the book.